You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. One, two, three, four, five. I'm on. How about you? I'm on too. Okay. Rebecca, you know how we always tell our listeners to go to crimewriterson.com, click on our Amazon link and do all their Amazon shopping, right? Yep, I know. Okay. You can still do that, but I'm, I'm asking people to check this one thing out on Amazon. Okay. Their new service. Amazon Music Unlimited. All right. All right. It's like the best online streaming service, and it comes from Amazon. They get tens of millions of songs, and I've checked. They have Captain and Tennille. <laughs> Here's an old man. They have Captain Beefheart. <laughs> they have Captain Fantastic and the Dirt Brown Cowboy. All right. They have Jay-Z and Beyonce. Uh-huh. Not everybody does. That's true. So it's fantastic, and whether you're an Amazon Prime member or not, right now you can get 30-day Free trial. What's it called? Amazon Music Unlimited. So All right. Go to crimewriterson.com. Mm-hmm. Click to Amazon, and when you get there, look up Music Unlimited. Get your 30-day free trial. It's only $9.99 a month. Oh. And the family plan is $14.99. That's not bad. And it's way better than those sketchy music <laughs> streaming services. You know it's just BitTorrents from Uzbekistan or something like oh, that, right? I don't know that. All right. So, again, go to crimewriterson.com. Click on to Amazon. Do all of your shopping. And while you're buy there- Buy your dog food. Buy your dog food, your- Prophylactics. Buy your pool supplies for summertime. Get your sunscreen. Get your skirted bathing suits. Absolutely. And also, check out Amazon Music Unlimited. Oh, and by the way, if there are listeners who don't know that we put outtakes in at the end of the show, they have to stick around and listen to this week's outtakes. Check it out. Speaking of music, hit that button right there. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. In this episode, we're going to once again visit the podcast everyone is talking, writing, and thinking about, S-Town, from the folks at Serial and This American Life. If you want to hear our conversations about chapters one through seven of S-Town, hit pause right now, go back to our previous three episodes. Tonight, though, we're going to be talking about some of your reactions to S-Town, some of our discussion about it, your reactions to it. Your reactions to our reactions? It's going to kind of be like a um, podcast therapy on a huge couch that holds tens of thousands of people, (laughs) basically, is what this is going to be. I'm really looking forward to it. Joining me right now is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Scooch over on the couch a little bit. I got to come in a little bit. <laughs> also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed PI, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. I wish I had a footstool for this or something. <laughs> <laughs> we have so much furniture in our tiny studio right now. It's kind of ridiculous. I needed yeah. like extra tables to hold all of these emails that we got from listeners, right? Kevin, okay. would you not agree that there's an absurd amount of furniture it in here? It is. You didn't have to actually build a whole new shelf, though. <laughs> also, Joining us is dystopian noir novelist and the white man who can jump, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> you haven't been watching Girls, apparently. I guess not. Um, hi. Hello. How's well, it going? It's going pretty well, American Toby. How you doing? I'm doing great. Great, great. Well, um, I did say last week that we received more correspondence about our discussions of S-Town. I want to say now... 
than we've gotten in the entirety of every other episode we've ever done put together. Uh, we printed out some wow. of the emails we received. There's about, I don't know, 75 printouts <laughs> in front of me. And that was only a small portion of the email that was people really want to talk about this podcast. Yeah. They want to share their feelings about it. They want to talk about how they feel about it a few days after listening to it. And uh, we are going to get to many of those emails. But before we do, we talked about Big Little Lies a few weeks ago. The series finally had its, you know, finale episode like two weeks ago, right, at this point? Yeah. And yeah. Um, I just want to know your quick thoughts like <laughs> Big Little Lies, the series. I know it's off topic, but I've been dying to catch it, like talk to you guys about it. Laura, what did you think of the finale of Big Little Lies and the series as a whole? Did you Were you still with it at the end? No, I was still with it, and I, I've confessed that I, um, after the second to last episode, I couldn't stand it anymore, um, and I actually went on Wikipedia to look up the ending, and I'm glad I did, because the person that I wanted to die died, and I was happy <laughs> with that. I was like, yes, that was a satisfying ending for me. Is the killer um, the same? It is. Yeah. But the thing was, I, you know, when you read the Wikipedia cheat sheet, there was a little more insight into why, um, well, everyone's watched now, why Bonnie was, you know, kind of sprung into action as she did. So there was a little more insight. But I, I loved the last shot where we had the glasses. So we knew, you know, the binoculars, we knew it wasn't quite over yet. So there was still the possibility of something else. What about you, Toby? How'd you feel about the finale of Big Little Lies and, and the series as a body of work? Did you like it? I did. I did. I did the one thing that I never do, which is I'm like pretty fastidious and not reading stuff about what we're reviewing. But uh, I was eating lunch or something and Slate had a like theories about the ending. And the th one of the theories was that it was that guy, whatever his name is, getting killed. And uh, I was like, damn it. You know, this has definitely got to be it. Like, it makes too much sense. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of felt like. That person had nailed it, and then sure enough, it happened. But I thought it was really good. You know, I, as I've said in about many other things, like I think the endings are sometimes hard to nail, and I thought they did a really good job. Yeah, I loved it. The one weakness that I always point to, just as it's funny to me, is that Nicole Kidman cannot speak an American accent <laughs> for more than three words at a stretch. You see in the credits, they have like they have Nicole Kidman's dialogue coach, and I'm like, I would go. No, no, not dialogue coach. Yeah. Dialect I know. Coach. I, I would not want my name next to that credit if it were me. HBO should demand their money back from that person. But here's the thing. She's such a good actress. Mm -hmm. It's like, why can't she do that one thing? Why can't they just make her like Sandy from why Grace and she's from Why can't they make her an Australian, Australia? like person she's, of Australian descent? <laughs> she's an actress, not a mimic. <laughs> I know. That's true. That's true. Kevin, what did you think of the finale and the season of Big Little Lies as a whole? Did you enjoy it as much as I did? I did because I didn't know what we were getting into. Like we said, they marketed it like it was chiclet. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a lot of chiclet mystery stuff, and that's what it was. It's not a put down. I actually like it, you love chiclet. Who are you kidding? No, no, no. no. But as, as far as a, a genre piece, it was very good. There were three things that we needed to know: who was the rapist, who was the killer, who was the victim. And out of those, I, I guess two out of the three, I thought they were super obvious. Um, however, that didn't ruin it for me when it came true. Yeah, it was well yeah. done. It was, it was fun. Well done. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Good. It was solid. By the way, everyone in that town is a good singer, apparently. That was interesting. <laughs> that would I tell you that would be the shittiest fundraiser to go to where you have to dress up either like Elvis or Audrey Hepburn and then do karaoke with a live band. Let me tell you, it would and be just sit there like oh. It would be shitty in New Hampshire. A, because nobody here has any style. The guy at who all. got thrown down the stairs got <laughs> off lucky. That he didn't have to sit through the rest of that. 
But why was it called trivia night? I do not understand <laughs> how true. like <laughs> that is not trying to guess what celebrity you're impersonating. Like where's the trivia? It's true. I didn't see That's any an trivia. Excellent point. <laughs> Another flaw pointed out saying. by Laura Bricker. Oh man. Laura Bricker, man, she's on top of the details, isn't she? All right. Well, now that we've gotten that very important piece of business out of the way, let's move on to this giant pile of um, therapy-related notes that we've received from listeners about S-Town and our discussion of S-Town. First, I'm going to start with a couple of pieces of criticism of me because I feel like that's fair. And then later when you all get it, you won't feel so bad. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. All right. So this is from Allison. Wait, is this she about says, S-Town or is this about us? It's about both. All right. Okay. This, is a, this is a grab bag. It's, it's therapy for thousands of people, Kevin. Okay, sure, sure. All right. This is from Allison. She says, hi. Hi. I must voice objection to your casual use of the term cracker. It's judgmental, derogatory term, and you know it. Shame on you. And you're glossing over, yeah, there was some hate speech. Shame on you again. I hope you all grow out of your smug media egos and accept your roles of social responsibility. P.S. I am white and live in New York City. All right. Full disclosure. Do we get a first name on that person? Allison. Okay. Hey, Allison. I was not comfortable with my use of the word cracker. I heard it when I was editing the podcast, and I thought, oh, I totally shouldn't have said that. I was trying to be flip. I know that that's not a word that I would normally use like in my daily like vernacular. So you're but walking that one back. No, I'm not walking it back. I'm saying that sometimes in a candid discussion, sometimes you're more candid than you mean to be. You're trying to be funny. You're trying to be flip. And this podcast is live to tape. And if we were perfect, it wouldn't be fun. And sometimes even I say things that I later regret. But I don't want to edit them out if that's what I actually said in the moment. So I'm uh, saying I probably shouldn't have said it, but I left it in the edit. And I'm sorry that it offended you, Allison. Okay, next. Um, One more big piece of criticism for me is that I used the word crazy to describe John after he had the mercury poisoning. And somebody wrote a very, 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 this is Ruthie, wrote a very, very passionate, very long, I would say, John-length email about this, detailing all the context about why that was offensive to her. Um, I see seven paragraphs on the first page. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very long. She says she's not here to shame, demand apologies, or drag anybody. She just wants me to understand normalization of it is harmful. Yes, I get it. But I believe in the moment I also said, I know that this term is not in the DSM-5 and I'm using it, uh, you know. But yeah, I'm comfortable with the use of the word crazy in that context as I used it. But I do want to acknowledge that I understand that not everybody was down with that. So yeah, so those were two uh, particular criticisms of me, and there are more that I will get to later. But uh, these aren't all criticisms, I swear to God. Most of them are just interesting ideas that I want you guys to consider. (laughs) Okay. All right, so Laura, I'm going to throw this uh, next email to you. This is from Tiffany, and Tiffany says, I'm surprised you barely mentioned court clerk number two Faye. I'm listening to the entire series again. She seems shady as hell. <laughs> if she didn't take the gold, why is she lying to everyone? Telling Rita she hasn't talked to Brian. Telling Brian she gave Rita the list saying she called and left messages for John's friends when she clearly didn't. Something feels off here. I'm just curious if I'm alone in giving Faye some pretty serious side eye. Love the show. Tiffany. Laura, what do you think? You know, I, I think I said something about this because I was thinking, oh, maybe she was like John's secret girlfriend and she took the money. And um, I, I definitely had some suspicions about Faye. And, uh, you know, I wish we had had a little more follow up as to what happened to her, because it did seem awfully odd that she didn't notify people. And that's why I thought maybe this was all a cover and she's living large somewhere now with her gold bullion. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that was a good one to throw your way because I think that you were also throwing face and side eye during the whole podcast. <laughs> I was, I was. <laughs> Another piece of disclosure. Um, 
Most of these emails, I would say 95% of them are very long. So I've literally just highlighted a line or two here or there that I'm going to read. If I were to read all of these emails back to front, this would be a 13-hour podcast. It'd be, longer, it'd be twice as long as S-Town. That's right. So, Toby, this one is for you. Um, I'm sure you can guess that many, many of the emails that came your way were about some of your uh, feelings about the way that race was or wasn't handled in the podcast. But uh, this isn't one of those, so I'm just going to throw this wow. one to you first. Uh, this is from Allison, and she says one of the things that she reacted to strongly was something we omitted in our discussion, and that was the final part of John's suicide note where he talked about all of the joy he found in life. Allison says, that is what made the podcast for me. I have struggled with depression for many years. At points, I have been plagued with thoughts of suicide. What John wrote about his life really impacted me. There's clearly a lot of sorrow and pain, but also beauty and joy. So why do you think we omitted that? Was that just my fault as a host? Is that is that something that you picked up on too, that that part of his suicide note was important? Yeah, I, I, I totally blame you. <laughs> I wanted to talk about it. You wouldn't let me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I thought it was affecting, and I thought it was an important way to end it because it, you know, it's not really a twist, but it does kind of, like, bring it back from sort of this feeling of despair about him. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why we didn't talk about it. But we probably should have. Good pickup, Allison. Very good. Is that pick the up. same Allison? No. Who doesn't like you calling people crackers? No, different. <laughs> different. I think. Pretty sure it's a different person. No, her aim is true. <laughs> Kevin, uh, would you like me to ask? Yeah, go ahead. For you? Yeah, okay. hit me. All right. Yeah. This is a good one, and this is one that maybe more than one person can weigh in on. Can y'all? Oh, this is from Sarah. Hey, Sarah. Can y'all? I I don't think she's from near us. Just going to say that right now. Can y'all please dive deeper into discussion on the ethics of everything that was covered and disclosed in S-Town about John after his death? I keep going back and forth in my head. I would love to hear each of your perspectives. Okay, she's giving permission for us to not have it just be to you. I am a social worker, so everything in me screams confidentiality and respect, but obviously John B. consenting to being recorded. Would he have wanted all of that aired? And was he suffering from mental illness and able to fully realize what he was consenting to? I would love your journalist's perspective on this. So, Kevin, what are your thoughts? Well, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, Okay, so she said uh, confidentiality and ethics. Was that like one of the things? That's the main thing. Okay, so ethics um, is a different question. Confidentiality, that's, you know, as a social worker, yes. As a journalist, no. All that, that he shared was he willingly shared. And then we get to the second part of like whether he really could consent. And to continue to do a biographical search of him, I mean, is completely within the journalistic code of ethics and and whatnot. If what gets uncovered makes us feel uncomfortable, then that's a different discussion. It's probably a sign it's a good right. I don't have a problem with the ethics of it. Did he, well, I guess we don't know what his mental state was. I mean, there's there is circumstantial evidence that he suffered from you know, exposure to mercury. And so are those effects, is that poisoning or is that a mental health issue versus an environment? I, I mean, I, 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 you'd have to ask a physician. There could be a distinction there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think like, you could say afterwards, oh, you know, he probably didn't want that. I mean, I think John definitely spent many, many hours on the telephone with someone he knew to be a journalist. And I imagine that he would have wanted his story to go on. 
Now, Toby, what do you think? Do you think that uh, there were ethical concerns with the details that Brian shared around John, considering the fact that he was likely mentally ill? And, you know, do you, for you, it was Presumably. consent an issue? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think John so much wanted to have his story told. You know, in that way, it seems as though in some ways he gave sort of implicit consent, you know, whether mentally ill people are willing to make decisions about what they want people to know about them. That's a tough one. I mean, I think part of it is, at least for me, is the way that John sort of characterized church versus the way that Tyler characterized church. And that was the one thing where it seemed like, okay, now we're going beyond kind of what John was willing to divulge into something that he was clearly hiding. Right. It's a tough one. You know, I don't feel like Brian cross some line anywhere. I think I think if anything, he was kind of dancing around the gray areas. It didn't strike me like the way Missing Richard Simmons did. Right. Can I clarify just one thing I sure, said sure. so I don't want to be misunderstood? If someone takes their life, mm-hmm. I should say if someone is completely emotionally and mentally healthy in that moment, they don't take their life. Mm-hmm. So that is a clue. Is it, We can draw conclusions about his suicide, about his mental or the chemical health of him, we don't know. But I don't want to imply that he didn't have any sort of problem. Right. Because he obviously had something, but we don't know if it's chronic, if it was situational, or or, or whatever. So there are, as I mentioned, a whole bunch of emails to Toby about race. Now, I just want to be clear that we got a lot of emails for all of us that agreed with the things we said, that said, you know, I thought you were right on. I thought Toby was right on. Laura, I thought you were right on. It would be really f***ing boring to read those emails about like, hey, I agreed with you, Kevin. What do you think about that? What are you Maybe say? at the end of the night we should <laughs> we will want those. No, no, no. But I, I just I just want to point out here to our audience that like yes. this is not necessarily a, you know, a fair sample. I just pulled out the ones that I thought were provocative right. and that might be the most interesting points of discussion. And a lot of the ones toward Toby about <laughs> race wanted to challenge you a little bit, Toby, on your thoughts about how Brian handled race. And let me just uh, read a couple real quick that are very short, just so you can get a sense of some of the themes here. And then I want your thoughts. The first one is from Julia, uh, who says, and she's from Metro Detroit. She talks about the fact that her mother is sort of the discussion point in her life around racism. She says she lives in a diverse suburb. She's white. She is in an interracial marriage. Her mother is a person who really thinks that she's one of the people who thinks that racism doesn't still exist anymore in America today. And her response about this podcast is that she's wondering if she can get her mom to listen to S-Town. She appreciates the podcast showed how prevalent racism was in a, t- in a small town and that uh, racist people can also be likable, but that doesn't in fact mean that they're not racist. And then there was a really another really interesting email from Susan who says, I have a couple of quick thoughts on the way Brian Reed addressed race in the South and S-Town and wanted to share. And then the highlighted sentence here is, um, Reed was the ultimate outsider in this situation. The atmosphere was tense with the potential for violence. I will not fault him for letting that happen around him. It was an impossible situation, and he, as an observer, wanted to maintain the status quo and probably just get out of there as quickly as possible. 
Here's one from Amy who says, I'm writing to Toby's point that something more needed to be said, done in addressing the racist characters. As a listener, I appreciate being trusted to hear the truth and distill it for myself. To leave racists out of the story, to silence them, is to hide them, expose them. This is said in sensitivity to the fact that I'm a person who lives in the deluded pleasure of white privilege. And she says, by the way, P.S., there's no way Brian was not sending us a message in leaving Tyler's turn that off comment. Come on, why leave that in if code wasn't for Tyler has some of that gold? Uh, (laughs) So anyway, that was an aside. And finally, Toby says there's more to the rural South than racism. True, but surely there are more to racists than their racism. We too easily view people as one thing. We see this in the way John B.'s sexuality was almost made to be the controlling factor of who he is mm-hmm. and why his life turned out the way he did, which, by the way, is another criticism of S-Town that yep. I've seen. Tyler was sympathetic in many ways. Why does his racism wipe this out? So, Toby, you heard a couple of interesting cogent arguments there countering your take on Brian Reed's handling of racism. Tell the Internet they're wrong, Toby. No, no, you don't tell them they're wrong. I'm just I'm just curious to know what you think about those points of view. Yeah, and I also got, I got like, so many people tweeting at me. I finally, I was, like, responding to people, responding to people, and I finally said, I think we're probably going to talk about it the next podcast. <laughs> uh, but, I, I mean, they fall, a lot of them fell into these kinds of things. I mean, I, I think I kind of went on, and uh, it might have been better if I'd used fewer words. You're a writer, so goddammit. Yeah. So, first of all, I don't think, my expectation wasn't that Brian was going to call, it was going to be like, hey, guys, that's really not cool. While he's like hanging out with them, like that—that that wasn't the issue. Like I didn't think he was supposed to confront them during interviews and be like, "Racism sucks." Um, <laughs> and Brian Reed like, was never heard from again. Right. That wasn't it. Then there was, you know, the, several people said, "I'd like to be able to, you know, make up my mind and that, you know, trust the uh, reader." And maybe this is more of a like coming at it from a writer standpoint than from a consumer standpoint. Part of the issue for me was. He starts off, you're introduced to Tyler and his gang. You you hear their banter and stuff, but sort of the essential information you get about them is that they're racist. And then he immediately goes from that into making Tyler a sympathetic character. It's funny to have that piece of information and then jump right into this guy being a protagonist. Like people said, you know, I, I think Brian's got like like play with a very even hand and let people decide. And I I don't think that's true. I think Tyler was portrayed very, very sympathetically in that what he actually does and says aren't particularly sympathetic. What's sympathetic is that he clearly like people like him, like Brian likes him, John liked him, things like that. But, But the stuff that you actually hear him say and that you know about him aren't particularly endearing. Hmm. Um, That's sort of, in some ways, the crux of it. And I I was talking to a friend about this, and he was kind of challenging me on it a little bit, too. You know, other people said, if they started talking about race, it would have hijacked the podcast. And I guess my feeling is, and, you know, I'm sure people disagree with me, which is fine, but if he'd said something up front like, look, where this story takes place, the people who are in it, a lot of people have racial views that people would find offensive. I find offensive. It's in a town that's got a history that's racist and it's troubling. And so there's all this stuff going on and I don't want to ignore it. And I want to let you know that I'm uncomfortable with it. But that's not really what this story is about. Mm-hmm. So you wanted more of a disclaimer than the one he gave. That would have helped? 
Well, what disclaimer did he give? He told the whole story about the context of what he did before he went there. I think he did give a disclaimer without giving a disclaimer. It was a well, differently about the, written about, disclaimer. About the Facebook stuff? Yes. That's part of it, you, you know, mm-hmm. and I mean, he has, he's in an interracial marriage. He made I it think clear he doesn't approve that y- yeah. way. Yeah. I mean, and I don't, I don't want to bogart on, on, on Toby's email here. I, I didn't really say anything last week, but I mean, I'd say we hold these truths to be self-evident. Somebody drops an N-bomb, you know what to think of that person. You don't have to go on and on and on about how racist they are. Hmm. You know. Okay. I think the reason why, in my opinion, that there's no need to dive so deep into the racism from a narrative aspect is because that doesn't really play a role in ultimately what the story is about. John doesn't join the Klan. He doesn't attack a black man. His racist, the racism of the other people don't necessarily play out in what this ultimate story is about a fake murder and missing gold and a look at John's life. Whereas the homosexuality and that whole thing, which is also very controversial and people talked about, oh, we'll ultimately talk about does. Right. A reporter is supposed to sit there and observe and report. And if he was pardon the term, whitewashing it, he wouldn't have included any of that audio of guys dropping N-bombs and talking about stuff. He put it out there, and you know. And okay. from there on out, you know what you're dealing with. All right, so we have two very clear and I respect Toby's concise very and much. very respectful points of view, and uh, I think you both have valid points. I do not want to let the conversation about race hijack this podcast, <laughs> Yeah. except I do want to read an historic hate mail to Laura Bricker right now. Holy cow, really? Which relates. Are you ready? Oh, oh okay. The whole waiting. thing? This is from Monique. No, I'm only going to read a couple lines. There's okay. too much hate in here to pack right. into one into one, uh, one reading. <laughs> WTF Laura Bricker. This is the second time that Laura has dismissed racism and it's starting to piss me off. The first time was during Bowerville when she talked about the race problems in Australia and so that Australia is dealing with the race issues today that America dealt with 50 years ago. Really? The idea that the U.S. is more advanced than other countries concerning race? I would find it laughable if it weren't so offensive. And then she goes on, uh, I love your show, but it wouldn't hurt for you to have some diversity on your panel every once in a while. If for no other reason than you may have dug deeper into the paradox of John B. supporting white supremacists simultaneously bemoaning white supremacy, etc., etc. So, Laura, you got pointed out in this one, and uh, I just want to give you a chance to, uh, you know, respond. I think Monique called you out a little bit. She did. And I have to say, I this is awful. I can't remember the discussion during Bowerville. So I can only like I have kind of short term memory. So I apologize for, you know, what I said at that point. I really honestly don't remember going. It may have been a side comment that wasn't something that I may have just, you know, flipply said. But with regard to what I said last week, it wasn't I, I don't want to say I was being dismissive if it came off that way. What I was saying was kind of similar to what Kevin was saying was I felt like. The race issue was addressed and it was included in the story. We included information about what people were saying and what people were doing. So it wasn't like it wasn't there, but I felt like this particular story was more about this mystery around John's life. And for me, you know, and I felt like that's where the story was going. And there was obviously characters in that story who were quite racist and that was noted but that the story that really became the dominant story that we were following was more the story of John's life. I think it's funny when what, what Monique yeah. says is fair. This is not a diverse panel. We are four white people. We are not qualified 
to talk with a complete picture of what, you know, the African-American experience is on this show. We can talk about how we feel. I mean, I can say, you know, I grew up in Vermont and it was probably the whitest place. There was one black person in my entire high school and that was it. That was the diversity that I grew up with. So I'm probably not as well versed or cognizant of issues that other people that grew up in other areas are just because that was my experience. Yeah. And and Laura, I guess we should probably note at this point that you've probably done more in your professional career to assist people of color than there are other three of us combined uh, in, yeah. <laughs> in this podcast. So, <laughs> Kevin, I'm going to throw this one your way because okay. I know that you had an email exchange with a listener this week, something that you felt a little bit sensitive about, but this is a different email that okay. we received, not not the one that you responded to, maybe a little <laughs> bit uh, yeah. too off the cuff if you want to tell that story. This is from Katie May who says, um, I appreciate Rebecca's efforts to reassure listeners that the panel is not homophobic, which I genuinely believe to be true. But there did seem to be a palpable discomfort among the panel with having to hear about the bare facts of John's sexual and quasi-sexual experiences. And it seemed this discomfort led in part to Chapter 6 getting short shrift in your review. So Mm -hmm. basically mirroring what I think the other emailer said, which was, we found the gay stuff to be icky, which you took umbrage with. And I I I did did too as well. I had a ultimately like a really positive email exchange with with two people after uh, not seeing their point of view uh, after reading 50 emails. And I, <laughs> I apologize you profusely. You were thin-skinned after reading all I, these yeah, emails. I, I was. Look, I certainly uh, understand now that specifically episode six really resonated with our friends in the gay community, that it spoke- it And was, with our enemies in the gay community. Okay, sure. Uh, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> that it, it spoke to them on a different level, a deeper level- and even though we could see, like I definitely, like, you you don't have to be homosexual to understand the Brokeback Mountain significance. We've all been in a situation we think, or at least we can we can sympathize with somebody who doesn't get the love of their life. Admittedly, I'm heterosexual, so I can't empathize with them, but I sympathize with them, and I'm glad that people reached out and, and let us know how important that was to them and how much they got out of it. The issue I had with episode six was not the, quote, icky gay stuff. I'm fine with that. That is definitely not what it was. It just, for me, went on too long Mm -hmm. as a narrative, right? Just as a chapter, it was just out of balance with the rest of it. It doesn't mean that it was, you know, less consequential. I mean, we talked about sort of like the first 20 minutes of episode one was kind of unbalanced, you know, as far as the just this phone call. The, the, The second thing was John is colorfully vulgar. And it's enjoyable, right? And Olin's description of some of John's anecdotes was clinically explicit, which may be a distinction without a difference, but it was very shocking. And in some sense, it could be off-putting. But that is not because it is a gay man engaging in risky behavior. To me, it was just risky behavior. Mm -hmm. And it's tragic. He was so desperate for some kind of real connection with somebody that he engaged in risky behavior. And that's the things that heterosexuals do and homosexuals do and drunk people do and people with compulsive behaviors do. And it's sad and it's tragic. And this is something that is a secret to John. And we learn this about him. Right. A guy who seems so freewheeling and carefree and colorful and charismatic that what this describes is 
a very sad thing. You know, sad I, to you, sad to me, right? And I'm sure, and I'm sure this is the reason why Brian brought it up. It wasn't to shock and titillate. When I said there were artistic choices that I would have done without, I probably would have done without the story about the guy ejaculating into the flower. Yeah, bed. see, there, that there's a difference between that, just explicit. Just because it's around a gay story doesn't mean it's not explicit in and of itself. If it was a guy and a woman, yeah. and he went to a woman's well, house and a guy did that, I would, I would still feel I, the I same way. I wouldn't want to hear that either. Is that, is that where yes. you're at, Laura? That's where I'm at, and that's what, you know, and that's what I was trying to... It doesn't matter who it was that was doing the acts, if it was like two guys, two girls, a guy and a... I mean, it was just that it was so graphic, and I felt like that was just a little too much information for yeah, me it was um, place, regardless of who was doing it it yeah. was just a little too much information for yeah. me i think texturally it stuck and, out but for some people yeah. it, it was fine and maybe they wanted to hear more and i respect that and we I'm got glad we heard many that. many many emails from people who said uh number six was the most important one to them and the most meaningful and they got the most out of it of any of the episodes so there's plenty okay. yeah, of people I, feel I, way. I think i said that when i was kind of saying i didn't like episode six i said i thought i that for some people would be their favorite and that it was just kind of a matter of taste. Oh, you're so smart, Toby. But I think it is, you know. Yeah, I yeah. mean, certain people, it's just not my... It, it was just more of a sort of doomed romance story. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate why people would find it important. I, would, I appreciate why people would feel that us picking that particular thing out as being something we were critical of, I, I guess I can't... I, I don't quite understand people finding that offensive, but finding it disappointing, certainly. So, yeah. But for those who said this was really important, I think that that's great. No, and I, I think and it I, was it really important. It makes me look at it in a different way, in a, at a deeper right. level. I read so many emails from people who said just that. Uh, let me just give you, let me see if I can find one real quick. Oh, by the way, we also got a great email, by the way, uh, from Kyan from New Zealand, uh, basically asking like specifically what you would have cut out of that episode. I think I just answered I that. I think yeah. you answered that question. Yeah. I don't know. I have to go back to all of it. I mean, yeah. Lawrence um, of Arabia is a good movie. It's too fucking long. <laughs> I, it just, you know. We did get many, many emails from listeners who said and, and gave long personal stories mm. detailing why that episode was so important to them and it was so important for them to hear those details because they could relate so closely to them and they've had such similar experiences and that being gay in America is not mm-hmm. fun and games for a lot of people and mm-hmm. it's also not necessarily um, fair and I've read I read a great piece of criticism about I, I said something about not liking think pieces about podcasts but I really read a great one today about the show saying that Brian is telling this story through a very heteronormative lens and he can only portray the series of events as being sad and that maybe it wasn't sad and maybe when he does that country song thing that is in some way denigrating a sexual experience that a lot of people find just fine and not sad at all which I think is also fair to throw out there. So there's a lot, a lot of interesting points of view on this. Um, obviously, this is something else we could talk about along with uh, the racism stuff all night, but we have a lot more to get to. From now on, when I think back about episode six, I will think of all these people that emailed us and shared their very personal stories. It was very rewarding to read them, even if they disagreed with us. And yeah. I, I hope that you know that it wasn't that we were being 
Icked out by gay, gay stuff. No, yeah, but but I mean, to, it, not, yeah, not did, we, <laughs> no, no, that was my favorite thing that someone no, said. I'm I'll, sorry, I'll never you do were the, so Some out. of my best friends are dot dot dot. But I mean, <laughs> I think some you just of it did. is just maybe I guess, I guess maybe I just did. I guess I'm the asshole. So I've called myself out as the asshole. There no, no, no need, you're no not. need to email me. I promise. But you. it was really great. It was really great. It was really interesting to read. I assure you, we were not icked out by the gay stuff. All right, so uh, Kevin, one quick question for you. Yeah, this is a question from Marcus. Who says, if John didn't die, do you think S-Town would have been released? Um, I would say that it would not be released as a podcast. Oh, if he didn't die. Let me think. I'm going to read that question again because clearly you didn't understand it. Yeah. If John didn't die, do you think S-Town would have been released? It would not have been a podcast. I think it definitely would have been probably what what it was originally intended to be, which was an episode of This American Life. And I think Brian was still in contact with John just so that he could kind of draw out what this story is now, if it's not about that, it's probably about a, you know, a small town or whatever. It was really interesting as I heard Julie Schneider and uh, Sarah Koenig on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me talking about this. And S-Town, they talked about the title. The working title was S-Town, but it stuck. But one of the titles they were going to call it was The Vulgar Horologist. Hmm. And so, I mean, it goes to show you the focus was always supposed to be John in this setting. And so, yeah, it wouldn't be a seven-part podcast about his life, but it would very easily have been a 20-minute or maybe a full hour on the public radio show This American Life. You know, but it's just like one of those things you have to dig really deep and find what that story is. You yep. have to hunt for it. Uh-huh. Just like you have to go and hunt a killer oh. with the Hunt a Killer Murder Mystery subscription I gotta box. say, I saw that one coming. You did? <laughs> you telegraphed it Oh, a bit. well, you're a great detective, <laughs> Rebecca. Which is why that you should subscribe to Hunt a Killer. I should. It puts your true crime sleuthing skills to the test. Just remember, you don't have to go anywhere. They just bring the clues right to your door. You get all sorts of cool stuff uh, that goes along with helping you solve the crime, like letters, articles, objects, tools, things like that. No, it's not Colonel Mustard. It's way better than that. And all you have to do is apply for membership at Hunt killer.com Is it harder than getting into college? Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. But it's way more rewarding, and you will not be eighty rejected. million dollars. Rejected. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you won't be rejected. They do only let a few hundred new members in a month. Well, so you will be rejected. <laughs> I guess it is harder than Harvard. Okay. So yeah. So don't wait d- too long. They have different subscription plans that you can choose from, and Hunt a Killer also makes an incredible gift. For the mystery person in your life. I don't know if they have anything about uh, fake murders or buried gold, but uh, it would be definitely the thing that you would give to somebody who'd be into that kind of stuff. If they could get in. if They'll be able to get in. <laughs> All you have to do is mention Crime Writers. You'll get 10% off when you sign up at huntakiller.com. Register now. Come join the hunt. And mention Crime Writers on. Anything else you want to talk about, Kevin? Yes. I had a picture of the page. <laughs> Now that I feel like I've listened to a podcast novel in S-Town, I'm ready for some audiobooks. You are. I think everybody is ready to go to like take a, a little break from uh, that long-form podcast and get into a really great audiobook from Audible. Oh, our old friend, Audible. My best friend. Your best friend. You are always <laughs> listening to Audible books. I am. It's books. pathetic. It's great because when you buy a book, you own the book from Audible. Yeah. And they have the great listen guarantee. If you decide that you don't like the book you choose, no worries. You can exchange 
any book for any other title, anytime, no questions asked. Does anybody have a great title from Audible they want to share? I'm listening to the Deborah Cromley uh, Mysteries right now, the Gemma James Kikaid Mysteries. There's like 17 of them, so I'm loving it because I've been going through like one every two or three 17? days. 17, really? Oh, yeah. But wow. you know me, I'm an addict. So you it's are. like crack. Like, I keep wondering who's talking to you in the shower. Uh, the, you have it on the speaker. That British lady? Yeah, Can exactly. I- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Laura, do you have anything to throw out as a recommendation? Well, I don't. I can't give it as a recommendation. I can tell you that what is next on my reading list, and I'm very excited to um, perhaps listen to when I go on vacation, Paula Hawkins, who wrote Girl on the Train, which is a book I loved, has a new book out, Into the Water, that just came out last week, and I'm eager to listen to that. Ooh, Mr. Ball, how about you? I am listening to The Night Ocean by Paul Lafarge, which is about, uh, it's, a, it's a novel about a fictionalized H.P. Lovecraft and his sort of dalliance with a, a younger man in Florida and then some other stuff that I don't know about yet because I'm only a little bit of the way through it. Well, Audible works on iPhones, iPads, Androids. Windows phones, Kindle Fire, just about anything that makes noise, you can listen to an audiobook. So it's great if you're getting ready for your summer vacation, your spring vacation, your spring break. If those travel delays are wasting your time, just buckle up and settle in while new ideas take off. You can't make more time, but you can make the most of it. Turn your travel into something more with a free trial at Audible. Go to audible.com slash crime to start right now. It's audible.com slash crime. crime. All right. So let's uh, continue this with another piece of hate mail for me, shall we? Yeah, why not? Let's balance this out. Let's like bookend it. So this is from Jake, who basically wants to take me to task for my thoughts on think pieces about podcasts. <laughs> Jake says, I love criticism and I love podcasts. Again, all of these emails are condensed way down to a couple of highlighted lines. This is another long one. By the way, every email we've read tonight is very, very long. I might point out down. that our podcast is about other podcasts. Hush now. Let's oh, okay. listen to what Jake right, has to right. say. Go ahead, Jake. Give it to her. I love criticism and I love podcasts. Good criticism. The kind of stuff A.O. Scott writes about, uh, et cetera, et cetera. What we need now is more and better criticism of podcasts. I feel your podcast dances close to the edge of criticism, but there's an anti-intellectual identity that you embrace so deeply that prevents you from doing criticism. You analyze discrete aspects of a podcast, the writing, the production, the structure, so it becomes more of a podcaster's take on podcasts and criticism. I have noticed this anti-intellectual, incurious pose for a while, but your rant against think pieces sealed it. I love a good think piece on podcasts. What do you have against thinking? Jake also says, I don't like it when you defer to Toby. Oh, you're so much smarter than me, Toby. Or when you defer to Starly Kine. The four of you have something to say. You're almost saying it. You in particular have more to say. I think he's talking to me. Uh-huh. You are right now the closest thing we have to a podcast critic. Step into it. Yeah. I think he's telling me to lean in is what he's saying. Uh, um, I have something to say to Jake. I Fuck have, off. No, 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 no. <laughs> Please take that away. Take that. <laughs> no, That's just out. for us. That's just for us. All right. Let me tell you what my problem is with Think Peace about podcasts, Jake. This isn't about you. 
This is about the many, 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 many people that I know at my workplace and on social media and in my life who read a well-crafted think piece about a podcast. And next thing you know, that is their opinion also Mm, about that podcast. It makes me bananas. And I see it over and over again. Somebody is in this rapturous sense of experience. They're listening to something that they love. Next thing you know, they say something like... You know, I kind of am a little bit concerned about the fact that Brian Reed did X, Y, Z, and I think, you know what? That was not your opinion before you read that thing that I saw you share on your Facebook page this morning, Missy. (laughs) So I guess that's my concern. I feel like when podcasts first come out, it's not a criticism of criticism in general because I don't feel like this happens necessarily with books and movies. There are plenty of movies that come out that get really smartly reviewed and then you could look at the, the critic score versus the viewer score on Rotten Tomatoes and they're really different. Like people come up with their own opinions of films and books in a way that they don't seem quite prepared to do about podcasts right now. So that is my, I think, main issue with it. It's just the same way I feel about Red Sox Nation. It's not so much about the team. It's about the people. Sorry, Kevin, but that's how I feel about it. Can I be critical of Jake's criticism of criticism? Sure. No, I won't. I won't. <laughs> anyway, so those are my short thoughts there. And then um, second, another... Thanks, Jake. Thank you, Jake, very much. And I am going to try to lean in a little bit more. And another um, critical email about me called... Uh, the subject line is Apologies. This is from Martha. She says, As someone's listened to and love your podcast from the beginning... It always annoys the shit out of me that you now have to advance apologize for so many of your comments and opinions <laughs> and how you phrase them. These critical tweets and emails. She are obviously coming. hasn't listened to the first half of this podcast. <laughs> it would never occur to me the four of you are insensitive to LGBT issues or mental health issues or that you gloss over hate speech or actually hate Canada. <laughs> I am a healthcare professional. I am sensitive about all these issues, but come on. John was batshit crazy. Stop tweeting and emailing every time you don't like phrasing and descriptions. What next? Yada, yada, yada. Will Toby get criticized by football fans because he clearly favors basketball? Will Laura start getting hate email from dog lovers who feel excluded from the cat of the week? She might. Anyway, this was obviously not really a hate email. Uh, It was a very kind, supportive email from Martha. So thank you for that, Martha. All right. Now let's get back to the real stuff. Um, I want to go ahead and play a voice memo from a faithful listener and tweeter named Richard, someone I think we know pretty well from social media. Can we go ahead and play that, Kevin? Hi, Crime Writers. This is Richard in Memphis, Tennessee. I just had a few thoughts on the S-Town podcast. It occurred to me throughout just how manipulative John was. He threatened suicide a number of times. He begged and pleaded with Tyler to stay. And he even brought Brian to shit town under false pretenses of the murder that never actually happened. I don't know if Brian didn't see what was going on or if he just didn't want to focus on it, but that seemed like a key aspect that was missing. Also, I think the actual framing of the story was off. It was more of just like a portrait where I think the real story is Brian attempting to comprehend and reconcile all the aspects of John's personality. I think it should have been more explicit in his quest to find out exactly who John was and whether he was the man Brian believed him to be. Toby, what do you think of uh, Richard's take there on what S-Town maybe was really about and whether or not Brian should have been more explicit about it? He makes good points. The manipulative thing, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I think he makes that pretty clear without, like, I guess, sort of explicitly talking about it. I mean, I, I get what he, I get what he's saying. You know, you compare him to um, what's his face who did the Richard Simmons one, Dan Taberski, and I, I think uh, Brian kind of is a little bit more comfortable in the background. 
All right. Now, Laura, I'm going to throw something to you, uh, mostly because I think we already know Toby's answer. He's answered in previous episodes about the um, horology antiquarian metaphor at the beginning of S-Town. Okay. Uh, this- <laughs> Toby, just try to contain yourself, okay? This is from- I'm, I'm mute. I'll mute. This is from Thomas, who says, uh, I want you to go into more detail regarding that metaphor. I think it was Brian's guiding principle for the whole podcast. As a reminder, they released it in the preview. It was laid out in the first five minutes. The gist is that when a horologist sits down to fix a clock, he looks at witness marks to reconstruct it. Witness marks can be misleading because the horologist wouldn't know if they were the result of damage or a bungled repair. My thought is that Brian introduced the podcast with that written description of John's craft as a metaphor for what he was doing with John's life. The mystery for listeners is to figure out this puzzle of a character rather than the original crime that John contacted Brian about. Just like horologists evaluating the witness marks in a clock, listeners have to figure out the value of information from each person Brian interviews. He ends the description of the horologist's job by saying, at every moment along the way, you decide if you're wasting your time or not. And then, by the way, um, he also adds, I like the witty line in Chapter 4 when Alan Bearden asked Brian to further investigate whether or not the other people on John's list were called after his death. Brian says, and for the second time, I find myself embarking on an investigation at the behest of an Alabamian horologist. (laughs) What do you think of this, I think, really inventive take on that horology metaphor and it not being about a mystery, but about being about about the podcast? What do you think, Laura? You know, I really like that because I, I didn't like it in the beginning because to me it was just kind of like I was like dragging on a little bit with this flowery description and I wanted to get right into the action so for me um, it wasn't particularly my style but as you're reading his email I was making a little note because this makes more sense to me as I'm thinking about your your kind of you know the marks that you're evaluating are John's version of events versus the version of events of people that knew John versus other people that were involved and and trying that does make a lot more sense and I can see how you can tie that into the whole clock analogy in the beginning it it makes it better I still to me in the beginning I was just like oh okay this is just a little too deep for me right now but thinking about it this way definitely makes a little more sense and you like this theory too right Kevin that was a great Email. Yeah. <laughs> so too. I, I think was... that's great analysis. Yeah. Well, I love when he says you're going to wonder if you're wasting your time. Yeah. Because think about the discussions and... we've had about the podcast, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, time is the th- is a major theme. Right. Throughout, you know, time is a theme. I don't think we definitely saw it or appreciated it as much, you know, in the preview trailer. Especially Toby. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> me too. I was like, kind of like, where, where, where is this going? But unlike some podcasts where we're following true crime mysteries and investigations and how they're developing, this was very much like putting a book down after chapter one and talking about it. Right. And thinking things are going to happen and getting it wrong, and you really have to have the full picture before you can have a full appreciation. And I think some time. I think if we we listen to it all and we can come back and have any discussion for three weeks – I think some of our, our points of view might change. I know that many of my points of view have, mm-hmm. have shifted since even our last discussion about this a few days ago. Yeah. So, Kevin, here's a nice, easy, clean question for you from Tom. Okay, Tom. This is, Tom was one of the many listeners who wrote about what they perceived to be a little bit of a bait and switch about the storytelling in S-Town, mm-hmm. the way it was marketed, the way that it sort of rolled out versus what it actually was. And I love the way he put this. Uh, so it seems to me that S-Town turned to be the podcast version of Lost. It sold itself on a central mystery that it just dropped to end on a contemplation of human nature and relationships. What do you think of that analogy? 
I don't think that applies to Lost. <laughs> it, no, this is actually so amazing because I was thinking of this today because after the finale of Lost, I watched it and wondered if I got it or liked it or whatever, and I went to bed that night, and all of my dreams throughout the whole night had to do with Lost. <laughs> it, like, it didn't get out of my head, right? And this is what's happening with S-Town. I, I've had nights where I've just kind of been tossing and turning into my subconscious, pulling this apart. And what do I like about it? And did I really like that? Or sh- am I not appreciating that? That's not Tom's question, though, is it? Is it a bait and switch? I thought it was going to be serial season three, yep. and it was going to be a hardcore thing like that, and it turned out not to be, then I'd say, if that was your expectation, you're really wrong, but I don't think that that's how that was presented, and I th- think you might have misinterpreted that. This is a little gruesome, but I like the question, so I'm going to ask it. This is from Lindy, who says, I wanted to write because I was curious about what you guys thought about the method that John used to carry out his suicide. It's not necessarily a surprise to me, but it feels like it's extremely rare in male suicides, I don't know if this is true or not, uh, but to use poison as a weapon of choice. To me, that seems like it's just rare in, in suicides. I don't know if that's, uh, I don't know. No, not rare, but she, she, gender-wise, I think statistically really? she's correct. I think that. that's true for murder, though. I thought murder, no, was, suicide, I thought murder was a lady's weapon. Male suicides tend to be poison. more violent in nature. Okay. Yeah. Do you have an opinion on John's use of poison uh, to commit suicide? Toby, do you have an opinion on that? Yes, I do. And... <laughs> you want to share it? Oh, oh okay. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, again, this is like totally speculative and it's just trying to reinforce my own theory. But the whole narcissist thing, that's, you know, Socrates and Galileo and, you know, various famous suicides or forced suicides in history have been through poison. So I don't I don't know if that would be why, but that would did be my theory. Did you just say forced suicide? Yeah, well, wasn't that what they did with uh Isn't that Galileo? Well, I think they told you know you got to drink the hemlock, huh. and he did. I, I you know, see how smart gonna, we are. Somebody, somebody, hey, somebody's going to totally, somebody's going to totally <laughs> fact check this and be like, dude, what are you even talking about? <laughs> um, I have dim memories of, of I think Socrates and Galileo drinking hemlock or some uh-huh. other kind of poison, and and maybe that was part of it. But narcissism um, is what you're saying, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you know, going out in a way that it's sort of commensurate with. Your sense of self. What do you think, Laura? Yeah, I have to say, I was surprised, and I, I can't remember if I talked about this or if I just thought this. This is what happens with us town and me. I think I'm <laughs> thinking about it, and I'm like, did I say dream. this out loud or was it a dream? But I was thinking there was so many people that were surprised that this was the way that John killed himself. People that knew him so well. Mm that knew that he talked about this and said, you know, I thought he would have shot himself. Really? Um, I think that was maybe the professor at college and also... More than one person said that. Yeah, yeah. Several people said that. I'll blow my brains out. Yeah, so I think I was kind of surprised. I was like, geez, I've never heard... You know, this is so dramatic. Mm -hmm. So what I was thinking about was just, boy, you know, he's going out in a very memorable way that was not going to be forgotten and that was not going to be unnoticed. I mean, it was certainly, um, you know... If you're going to kill yourself and you want to be remembered, this is, and I don't mean that to sound, you know, like I'm making light of somebody killing themselves, but this is a pretty dramatic way to kill yourself. It sounded um, you like know, he it, thought, Laura, that this was going to be painless. It's yes. from the, 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 the telephone call that John was under the impression and that he was surprised that it burned and hurt. Yeah, it sounded awful when he was, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And 
back to Faye, the mysterious Faye who was on the phone with, I mean, the, uh, there's more to Faye. Maybe we need to go down there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is a really interesting take, adding to the narcissistic manipulator thing that we've heard Toby talk about. Kevin, I'd love your point of view on this. This is from EW, is how she asked us to identify her. Okay. By the way, her subject line is, Toby is only scratching the surface. (laughs) So here's her email. This is from EW. I have a dim view of John. Toby is right about his narcissism, but that's just the beginning. He manipulated people around him for his benefit, gossiping, employing various people at various times, getting tattoos. But that is different from caring about people. His manipulation extended to his death. There is no gold and never was. Rita is correct when she says she only found a couple of accounts with next to no money in them. John made many people believe he was a rich, quirky benefactor, and the more they believed him, the more they were his puppets. Tyler was the ultimate puppet. He so neatly embodied everything John loathed about S-Town. John uses his death to set the stage for outsiders versus townsfolk. He eggs Tyler on from the grave with text messages that can be referenced over and over again. He traumatizes Faye as his last act to ensure the most effective dramatization of his demise. He knows he will will remain the talk of the town for ages because people will spin wild stories based on the threads he provided. Sadly, Tyler is what he always was, a patsy. John provided all the rope for him to figuratively hang himself in the court system. What do you think? That's from EW. EW. Not ooh. <laughs> no, that's uh, not her name. Those are her initials. That's a that's a really great perspective. Man, this would be like such a great college course about the different ways that you could interpret this. There is an element of truth here that John was keeping people close to him. If you want to believe that there never was any gold and he just enjoyed letting people think that, that is a form of manipulation and it would explain sort of Brian knew and we knew in the audience that John wanted to give Tyler something like when he passed on. Tyler obviously knew that if John was was bullshitting and was using that as a way to keep him close and have him come over and drink whiskey and go fishing and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a form of manipulation. I guess, you know, the difference is between what's done in good faith and what's done in bad faith. Quick nod to Greg, who wrote another really smart email, but then also had this line that I just wanted to include. As a dad who'd love to have your show on in the car with my kids, I'd like to vote that you go back to not swearing. Uh, Noted. Greg, we'll do our best. Um, Moving along. (laughs) And this is from Alexander. Laura, a different take, a different like sort of twist on the email that we just heard Kevin discuss. Alexander, who says, uh, first of all, are you going to do an episode on Big Little Lies? Go back in your feed, Alexander. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) We did. Second, he says, um, after a long... Look at this. Look at this. Holy cow. Look at this. Look at the writing he put into this, and I'm only going to read one little bit of it. I feel like a jerk. This was a really the font's kind of big, though. So. Beautifully written email. Honestly, this email was really, really beautifully written. We've had smart uh, listeners. I wish the podcast had followed Tyler more, and that we knew more of what's happening with him now. Overall, it's tragic. What happened to John B. The church stuff was very grim. To me, the attempts to make church into a BDSM fetish and then to complain about perceived judgmental attitudes towards such sexual practices is another example of how certain people are determined to crowbar their own agenda into the story. John B.'s life was not a tragedy. It was a complex, rich life which ended in tragedy. Tyler is more of a tragic figure in my mind, and I wish him well. So what are your thoughts about Tyler at this point, Laura? Toby says he was portrayed sympathetically. I actually disagree. I think the story took a twist and that at the end he wasn't. And this listener wants to know more about what's going on with Tyler now. Where do you land on Tyler right now as a character? 
Boy, I, I still want to see his house, but that's that's a whole side Ooh, issue. I, I can hook you up. A listener sent me photos allegedly of his house that were posted on Reddit. I will send those to you. Oh, oh, oh. good old Reddit. Good, good deal. I don't necessarily think Tyler was portrayed sympathetically. I think that as a journalist, the way that Brian basically, you know, reported what was going on with Tyler, he 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 gave the good, the bad, and the ugly. He just didn't really get too much into his own opinion about it. But I could see Tyler being a tragedy, you know, towards the end with the whole church angle because. He's obviously a kid who, you know, I call him a kid because I feel that's kind of what he seems like to me, who's had a a really tragic upbringing and a lot of trauma in his life. And so he's almost, you know, kind of desensitized to, or he probably is, to a lot of things. So he's just, you know, anytime that John needed a tattoo and it's, you know, really sounds like it crossed some boundaries there with John and the tattoos toward the end. Tyler was doing that. And it's, you know, when you kind of step back and and look at how he was fitting into the situation in the context of his childhood and what he'd seen, I mean, he was, I I don't want to say he was a victim, but he he kind of, in a way, uh, you know, he definitely got into more than he bargained for there. And I I think, I I don't have high hopes for where he's going to land in his life, which is sad, but I feel like he's unfortunately a product of his environment and the person that was trying to help him, even though it was not necessarily healthy toward the end, is no longer there. So I, I do want to revisit, as um, we've been talking about this a while, I feel like we could talk about this all night, and we have literally 60 more emails here, but I feel like we've covered a lot of the, the themes. Right. But one of the things I want to get to, um, I'm returning to this email from Kyan, which I sort of glossed over a little bit earlier. This is our listener from New Zealand. Double shot, Kyan. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm pronouncing, it's probably Kyan. Right? Hi. He's from New New Zealand. Is that racist to say that? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this is from Kyan who says he's one of our biggest fans. And uh, he's a bi guy. He does talk about the narrative need for episode six, essential to understand what's going on. I want to make sure that he, I include that he said that. He's the one who wanted to know what specifically parts you would have cut out. But what I want to focus on, wait, before I focus on this, I also want to read some of his PSs. P.S. His voice. This was the number one thing I was going to email you about. Brian Reed's voice. <laughs> Sorry, I know you don't want to hear about it. On that note, Rebecca, you've got a fabulous voice. Thanks so much, Kyan. Um, <laughs> Kevin, your ads are usually the best, and one of the selling points of your show that I mentioned when I recommend it. Right. Usually, yes. WTF. All right. it's, it's better than occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let me go back to the point that I, I really right, yeah. wanted to wrap this up on. That I think we all need to weigh in on. Has S-Town pushed the podcast medium into a new arena? In prose, there are books and there is literature. Mm -hmm. There are movies and there is cinema. Is S-Town the first equivalent of literature for podcasts? I think it is. Kevin, what do you think? I agree. It's in a different category. It's so ambitious. If there's somebody who's out there who says, I'm going to make the next S-Town, they better not like show up in six months because- that shit ain't gonna cut it. <laughs> you know, Sorry, I mean, this Greg. is. I, I mean, this is Brian's epic. You know, it's it's his uh, magnum opus. Yeah, maybe, maybe he'll make another one, and he'll call that one his magnum yeah, opus. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Toby? What do you think of this idea? Is uh, S Town the first example of literature in podcast form? Yeah, the stuff I've listened to. Afterwards, I felt like kind of a jerk for giving it a B plus. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give you a chance to revise your grade at the end of this podcast. Spoiler alert! So go ahead. Oh, awesome! All right, but but you agree that it's it's more literary. 
Oh, no, totally. What do you think, Laura? Yeah, and I think I've, I've said this before because I felt like as I was listening to it, it was definitely, it's like the difference between like a literary fiction novel versus mass market, which is where we are, where I am. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely a different type of experience and it really elevated this to more of an art form as opposed to simply reporting a story. Now, I will chime in and add uh, one thing to that, which is that the amount of conversation this podcast has inspired not just between the four of us but look at all those think pieces look at people posting on facebook about this podcast the conversations that i've seen about the podcast are elevated beyond the conversations i have seen about any other podcast nobody's bitching about don's time card nobody's everybody's talking about like really big ideas substantive yes yeah. The kind of big ideas you talk about, like in a college lit class. Exactly. Right, right. So I, I, I think even if you had bones to pick with some of the parts of the story, that is what makes this podcast singular. Now I'm going to give everyone an opportunity to, after some thought and time has passed, and we've all been dreaming apparently about S-Town and thinking about it and ruminating on it and reading about it and responding to hundreds of emails about it and culling through them and highlighting lines... I'm going to give each of you a chance to revisit your summation of S-Town and your letter grade and any additional thoughts you have about it as a series. Here's your opportunity. Kevin, you want to go first? Yeah, I'm going to stick with my A-. I think it was a really great podcast and it was the most ambitious. Did it have a couple of flaws? Yeah, things that were correctable. I would just say if this were a book, you'd have a different, maybe a different editor who would just point out, just flip A, B, and C around and you win the Pulitzer. Huh. What about you, Toby? What do you think? Yeah, I think I would. I would. I think I gave it a B plus last time, and I think I would give it an A now. Yeah, like Kevin says, there's some flaws, but what he's trying to do and what he accomplishes, I think, are just like so far. I don't want to say beyond because other people weren't trying to do it, but it's, it's just like a different thing that he was trying to accomplish. You know, I, I think that people like people pushing back, like on stuff that I I didn't like so much like episode six, you know, the fact that that was so affecting to some people or most people, I should probably say, I think probably points out more to my own lack of a certain taste or whatever. That's not really the fault of the podcast. So it's going to be a tough act to follow. What do you think, Laura? I think I did like A minus B plus last time. I'm going to go up to an A because there were, you know, there were certain things I had hoped turned out differently. I said I wanted more mystery. I was hoping for more gold and intrigue, but that was not where the real life story went. You know, as I'm thinking about kind of where this podcast is going to sort of sit in the podcast world, um, you know, thinking back to serial season one and how that really was the catalyst that changed the podcast genre to bring in all these new true crime podcasts that we all have been listening to. I feel like S-Town is the next step and it's going to be what I think is going to change and, you know, entice maybe some more literary podcasts to come onto the scene and change the genre in that way. So it's sort of, um, you know, I'll be curious to see what comes next, but this is going to be hard to top. Yeah, I'm just afraid we're going to get a bunch of really bad faux literary podcast. Yeah, I was about to say, there's going to be nothing worse than bad imitations of this. Right, because it was singular. That's what happened with true crime. I know, I know. I I mean, we we had some bad true crime podcasts, too, you know? We had? (laughs) We still have some bad true crime podcasts. I think there's a surprisingly, you know, looking back over everything that we've reviewed, I mean, I think the, the, the true crime stuff has been surprisingly pretty good. 
Yeah, well, a couple of the true crime podcasts we reviewed, a couple of (laughs) a couple of the podcasts we've talked about have just been nominated for major awards. Accused, by the way, is nominated for a Webby Award. Uh, In the Dark is nominated for a Peabody Award. Uh, There's a lot uh, of good stuff that we've talked about for sure. I 100% stand by my solid A. I think this was a game changer. I didn't love every minute of it, but a lot of things I love, I don't love. Every minute of. Kevin, before we do the crime of the week, is there anything else that you would like to say? Yeah, I want to let you know about a new podcast from Stitcher. Ooh, is this an ad? This is an ad. Ooh, and this full is transparency. For a podcast called First Day Back. Now, this, okay. the concept of this podcast is simple. How does a person return from an event that changes them? Hmm. So the new season starts with this crazy story. It's about a woman who accidentally shot and killed her husband. Uh, accidentally? But, ha- but has no memory of it. Huh. So she explains, you know, what happened that night, but it's really all about, like, what comes after. Like, uh, what was, like, her her first day out of prison? How does she readjust to freedom? How is she going to find a job? Will she be able to reconnect with her family and her, her grandson? That so, sounds interesting. Yeah, so how do you come back from the worst thing you've ever done, even when you don't remember doing it? It's called First Day Back. You can su- subscribe now on Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts, First Day Back. All right, first day back. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of the the week. week. By the way, Kevin, plenty of love and hate mail for your insensitive or brilliant impressions of Uncle Jimmy depending on where you land on that side of that. <laughs> I thought that might be polarizing. <laughs> a little bit polarizing, yes. <laughs> a Connecticut man was arrested this week on drunk driving charges after crashing into a wall and fleeing the scene. But it was his mugshot that really made the news. In his booking photo, Harrison Wooten was wearing a T-shirt that said, Hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> The unfortunate bit of wardrobe selection seems to be a part of a pattern. Just after St. Patrick's Day, Elwood Gutshall of Newville, Pennsylvania, was arrested wearing a T-shirt that said, Drunk Lives Matter. (laughs) I have a lot of issues with that one. Panel, I have a question for you. What would your T-shirt say if you were caught doing something really bad? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Um, I think it would say, oh, that yellow crime scene tape wasn't an invitation to walk through. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Kevin? Uh, What would your T-shirt say? Yeah, it's funny. I can't tell you how many of my relatives, their last words were, hold my beer and watch this. (laughs) I think that my T-shirt would be, for something bad, it'd be cookies? What cookies? (laughs) Mine would say, don't you know who I am? I'm Becky with the good hair. Uh, Uh, What about you, Toby Ball? What would your T-shirt say if you were caught doing something really bad? I don't have a good answer to this. Is that what your T-shirt would say? (laughs) 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 Ask the the guy next to me. That's actually not bad. I'm with stupid. (laughs) All right, we should probably end it on that illuminating note. How about Uh, Frankie says relax? (laughs) There you go. That's actually... All right. Well, you know what? That sounds like a good place to end things tonight. Uh, Toby Ball, if our listeners want to tweet to you and give you advice about what to print on that drunk driving T-shirt, how can they reach you on Twitter? Hey, can I plug something first? Yeah, please. It's already out by the time anybody listens to this, but I was on The Blotter Presents with Sarah Bunting, uh, which is a lot of fun. And we talked about the Casey Anthony ridiculousness that was on ID or something and then Paradise Lost which is actually great 
Nice. Um, and what is that podcast called? It's called The Blotter Presents. With the brilliant Sarah D. Bundy. Sarah D. Yeah, she's Bundy. awesome. Yeah. She is awesome. So you can reach me at TweeballNH and complain about that too. What about you, Laura? If our listeners want to tweet to you and, uh, I don't know, perhaps make sure that you pay attention to their dogs uh, next time we do Cat of the Week, <laughs> which is coming back next week, by the way. Next week, we're going to return to all of our favorite segments. Amazon items, Cat of the Week, we're doing it all next week. So, Laura oh, Bricker, boy. how can our listeners send you their cats on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Kevin Flynn, how can our listeners find you on the Twitters? Uh, they can find me at Kevin P. Flynn, and I really appreciate everybody reaching out this past week. It was really great hearing from them. It really was. Even the critical ones, it was fine. Yeah, Even yeah. though you were a little thin-skinned about it. I, well, I got over it. I was like, <laughs> you yeah. did get over I, it. It was a bad day. It had nothing to do with any of the listeners. Really. Well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoie. And hey, while you've got your podcast app open, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It makes a big difference in keeping us on the charts. And please check out our other podcast. These are their stories, the Law & Order podcast. On the new episode we dropped this week, we talked to an Irish guy about a case involving the Italian mob and it's pretty damn funny. A lot of patty wackery. <laughs> a lot of uh, tomfoolery. Our show's theme song was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. The handsome Henry Lavoie is our line producer. We record in Square Egg Studio at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the hub of our burgeoning podcast empire that lives in a closet in our basement. On behalf of all the crime writers, we will catch you later. Bricks, you're there. Yes. And you don't have the heater on. It's so like spring like (laughs) now, huh? I know. I know. Spring like. All the dead animal parts in the yard are like coming up to the surface. (laughs) (laughs) All the dog poop. Well, that too. But like the other day, I look out and I'm like, what the fuck? There's like these little squirrel arms. Squirrel (laughs) arms? Oh my God. Like just the arms, but I, don't I think, think they're called th- arms on a squirrel. They looked like little hands, but I think it was when we had that really big rain. Whenever that that they kind of like washed. doesn't do that. You have killer pets. <laughs> dismembered your the rain dismembered your you squirrels. Stamping the serial killer the cat. Holy crap! That's amazing. This is this is better than Hunt a Killer. It was so gross. He is her killer so I, curator. I had to get a fire poker and like just flick it off the porch. Squirrel arms. Yeah. Arms? Well, because at first I looked at them like, what that? What is that? And I'm like, oh my god, one? you should no, mount it's... them on like a little plaque, just little <laughs> arms sticking out of little hands instead of a head. They're stinky. And you go oh. by and give it high fives. Thanks again to Hunt a Killer for sponsoring the show today. Hunt a Killer is a murder mystery subscription box service that delivers new clues to your doorstep each month. A doorstop? To your doorstep each month. Hunt a Killer puts your true crime sleuthing skills to the test, and you don't even have to leave your house. Did you murder somebody? You don't murder somebody. Okay, just checking. You d- Although, apparently, I don't have to leave my house to murder somebody. Mm. The stories unfold via creepy correspondence, things like letters, articles, objects, and tools that all come from a Hannibal Lecter-type killer curator. 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 You say it wrong every time. It's curator. They all come from a Hannibal Lecter-type killer curator. Can you say it again like you're actually reading an ad (laughs) and not just like trying to pronounce a word that you can't pronounce? 
The stories unfold via creepy correspondence, things like letters, articles, objects, and tools, all coming from a creepy Hannibal Lecter type. So help support our show. Oh, you just scraped it all together that time. (laughs) Cheater. Do it again. Use the word. All right. The stories unfold via creepy correspondence, things like letters, articles, objects, and tools, all from a Hannibal Lecter-type killer curator. To help support our show, they've offered a 10% discount to our listeners. Use code WRITERS and get 10% off. So head on over to huntakiller.com and register now. Come join the hunt. Use the code WRITERS.